0: a serious injury or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by Docketwise, an all in one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, This show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. I've never lied to you and I'm not going to start now. Not the most interesting week in immigration. No wins for non-citizens, but five cases to remember nonetheless. Anyone want a CLE certificate? Hit me up with your 10 episodes and the date you listened to the last one, and we'll get it started. K Gregg at kktplaw.com. Here's a bunch of short asylum cases and a monster aggravated felony decision that's got my head spinning. First up, we have Hernandez Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on October 4th, 2021. This is a short case about asylum and related relief, specifically economic persecution. Ms. Hernandez Hernandez is from Guatemala and has two young children, one born in Guatemala and the other born in the United States after she came here. She entered the U.S. without authorization and once placed in removal proceedings, applied for asylum and related relief based on her membership in the quote, indigenous Quiche. end quote. In her asylum application, however, it appears that she claimed that she feared persecution from the Guatemalan government, quote, in the form of severe economic disadvantage or deprivation of liberty, food, housing, employment, and other essentials of life, end quote. Probably true things based on the country condition evidence regarding how the Guatemalan government disadvantages minority groups such as the Quiche, but almost surely insufficient for asylum. Before the IJ, she testified that she came to the United States, quote, for economic reasons and to secure a better life for her daughter, end quote. Again, almost certainly true, but also usually not sufficient to get asylum under current U.S. law. The IJ denied and the BIA affirmed, as did the Sixth Circuit. Although harm need not be physical to amount to persecution, and although, quote, economic deprivation can amount to persecution when the resulting conditions are sufficiently severe end quote to even potentially qualify as persecution quote the economic disadvantage must be deliberately imposed end quote here and while the record showed that quote the Guatemalan government has done little to help its indigenous population end quote the sixth circuit has previously held in another case that quote economic stratification and deficient government support Regrettable though they are, do not establish a cognizable case of persecution. End quote. But here's another quote for you. If Miss Hernandez Hernandez had shown that quote, the economic effects that she felt were set in motion by the government's deliberate acts, end quote, she might have had a case. Bet that applies somewhere, and maybe even to Quiche in Guatemala. And one final quote for everyone, applicable to countries that use their criminal or economic laws to target individuals or groups of people, quote, "...generally applicable laws can be the source of a petitioner's persecution when they are either applied in a discriminatory fashion or purposely enacted to produce a discriminatory effect." End quote. So while Ms. Hernandez-Hernandez lost her case because she could not bring her case within those standards... This decision provides a path to success in the Sixth Circuit for economic persecution cases, albeit a difficult one. And that is Hernandez Hernandez v. Garland. Sticking with the Sixth Circuit, we have Ramos Rafael v. Garland, published on October 7th, 2021. This is another short case from the Sixth Circuit on asylum and withholding of removal. Ms. Ramos Rafael is from Guatemala, and it appears, came to the U.S. border in 2016 and requested asylum. She was served with a notice to appear that lacked the time and place of her first removal hearing, and it appears, was paroled into the U.S. for removal proceedings. She received a notice of hearing later. It also appears that Ms. ramos Rafael made a claim similar to that made by Ms. ARCG, that is, quote, she would suffer violence because she is a woman, end quote, from private individuals in Guatemala if returned. By the time of the merits hearing, however, it appears that Attorney General Sessions had vacated matter of ARCG, and the IJ denied relief and protection. On appeal, the BIA held that Ms. Ramos Rafael had not shown, among other things, that, quote, the Guatemalan government is or was unable or unwilling to protect her from the harm she suffered or fears in Guatemala, end quote, seemingly because she didn't even argue the issue on appeal. The BIA also rejected Ms. Ramos Rafael's argument that the IJ lacked jurisdiction to order her removed due to the NTA's deficiencies. The Sixth Circuit affirmed. Now, of course, by this time, Attorney General Garland has reinstated matter of ARCG. However, the Sixth Circuit held that because Ms. ramos rafael technically waived the unable or unwilling to protect argument before the BIA, she waived the issue before the Sixth Circuit as well. And the court held in the alternative that even if Ms. ramos rafael had not technically waived the argument, her, quote, single conclusory statement that corruption and impunity continues to be widespread issues in Guatemala's government, end quote, did not suffice to meet the unable or unwilling to protect prong. And, as asylum applicants must establish all elements to obtain relief, the single flaw tanked Ms. Ramos-Raphael's case and petitioned for review. Addressing then that efficient NTA argument, the Sixth Circuit used some pretty broad language, stating that, quote, and Niz Chavez concern only the stop-time rule, which is not implicated here, end quote. So that's not great for future attempts to get proceedings terminated based on deficient NTAs in the Sixth Circuit. Heads up, though, the Sixth Circuit technically then went on to affirm only the now well-established holding that NTA deficiencies don't implicate jurisdiction. The court didn't say anything about claims processing rules. That being said, however, Ms. ramos rafael finally argued, and the Sixth Circuit addressed, that failure to include the date and time of the hearing in the NTA amounts to a due process violation, which, like a claims processing rule violation in some circuits, requires a showing of prejudice to succeed. The Sixth Circuit held here that Ms. Ramos-Raphael had not shown the required prejudice to establish a due process violation because, quote, she had not argued that the absence of the time and place in the notice to appear changed the outcome of the case, end quote. High standards and pretty bad all around. And that is Ramos Rafael v. Garland. Let's take a break from Asylum and go to the Ninth Circuit with Amaya v. Garland, published on October 7th, 2021. The fight over United States v. Valdivia Flores is on in the Ninth Circuit, everyone. For a refresher, check out Alfred B. Garland, discussed two episodes ago on the podcast. This case is a long one about aggravated felonies, and because it's so complicated, I'm going to include my commentary in the case discussion. And to start off, in this week's iteration of Bad Facts Make Bad Law, the court begins with a bang quote, Melvin Amaya shot his drug dealer five times and was convicted in Washington of first degree assault. End quote. All right, fine. I can see why the Ninth Circuit panel might not be down for some of Petitioner's creative legal arguments. Emotionally charged initiating case quotes aside, Mr. Amaya is from El Salvador and became an LPR in 1998 at the age of 17. He was actually involved in MS-13 in El Salvador, serving as a lookout or bait for the gang in the 1990s, but he left El Salvador to avoid getting jumped into the gang or killed by anti-gang forces in El Salvador but once in high school in the U.S., he made friends with MS-13 members again, and he got some gang tattoos. He dropped out of school, got involved in drugs, and then he shot his drug dealer five times after an argument. He ultimately pled guilty to the relatively minor-sounding first-degree assault statute under Washington Revised Code Section 9A.36.011, and he was sentenced to 153 months in prison. Following his sentence, DHS placed him in removal proceedings, charging Mr. Amaya as removable as a non-citizen LPR convicted of an aggravated felony, to wit, a crime of violence under INA Section One Hundred One A Forty Three F, as defined at eighteen U.S.C. Section Sixteen A. Now, just two weeks ago, I said that the panel and Alfred B. Garland begrudgingly seemed to acknowledge that no Washington crime can be a removable offense or at least an aggravated felony, due to United States v. Valdivia Flores. And that is because, to summarize briefly, the Ninth Circuit held in 2017 in Valdivia Flores that every Washington crime allows for conviction as an accomplice. Accomplice liability is not divisible from principal liability in Washington state, and the accomplice liability mens rea required to convict in Washington is lower than the accomplice liability mens rea required under federal law. That means, it would seem, that there can be no categorical match to a removable offense, because accomplice liability in Washington covers more conduct or is broader than the removability offense. And accomplice liability in Washington is indivisible from every crime in Washington. That's what I said two weeks ago, because that's what I thought the Ninth Circuit said in Alfred v. Garland and United States v. Valdivia Flores. The IJ and the BIA found Mr. Meyer removable anyway and denied withholding of removal and cat protection. And here, the Ninth Circuit dismissed the petition, notwithstanding Alfred and Valdivia Flores. And Judge Bybee, who's writing this decision, was on the Alfred panel two weeks ago. So what's up? Let's take the accomplice argument first. Everything I just said remains true. Accomplice and principal liability are indivisible under Washington law, And Washington accomplice liability has a lesser mens rea than federal accomplice liability because accomplice liability is a general intent crime in Washington, but requires a specific intent to aid and abet the crime under federal law. So Washington criminalizes more kinds of accomplice liability every time it criminalizes anything. But as to crimes of violence specifically, Judge Bybee says it doesn't matter because, quote, general intent remains a sufficient mens rea to serve as the basis for a crime of violence, quote. Okay. But wait, Kevin, didn't you say on episode 59 in Borden v. United States that the Supreme Court just held that the Elements Clause for Crimes of Violence has such a high mens rea that it, quote, excludes reckless conduct, end quote? Indeed, Kevin, I did say that, because the majority said that. The Ninth Circuit dispenses with Bourdain very quickly here by holding, it would appear, that a general intent crime has a knowing mens rea, and so it would satisfy Bourdain. I don't know, it's been a while since criminal law. I'll take the panel's word for it. But that still leaves the core argument in Valdivia Flores. What about the fact that accomplice liability in Washington state still doesn't match the definition of accomplice liability under federal law? That is, even if a state statute that allows for a principal conviction for a violent crime by merely requiring a general intent mens rea will satisfy the crime of violence definition under immigration law. For accomplice liability to qualify as a removable offense, the state's accomplice liability statute still needs to match the elements of federal accomplice liability, right? Isn't that what Valdivia Flores said in 2017? Well, not entirely, according to the panel. Seeing the Ninth Circuit's 2019 case in United States v. Dorr, a decision I had admittingly tried to push from my memory, the Ninth Circuit addressed Valdivia Flores' impact on the ACCA's materially identical crime of violence statute, and distinguished Valdivia Flores. According to Dorr and this panel here, Valdivia Flores was comparing a state statute to a removability offense, drug trafficking, which is a quote, generic federal offense, end quote, defined by, quote, enumerated offenses that require comparing a state statute with its federal counterpart, end quote. Crimes of violence, in contrast, require a comparison to a, quote, class of offenses defined by the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force, end quote. That matters, says the panel, because for such crimes, the analysis doesn't require a comparison of the elements of the crime of conviction to the elements of a generic federal crime. So we don't have to do this whole accomplice liability matching up thing. I'm just going to take a moment right here to say that I have no idea what's going on. Perhaps my dispute is with United States v. Dor, or maybe I'm just not understanding it correctly, but the removability crime of violence definition is expressly defined by the enumerated offense at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. And in any event, the Ninth Circuit applied the Valdivia Flores rationale to the aggravated felony definition at INA 101A43G two weeks ago, which doesn't reference any other enumerated federal statute at all. So I'm flummoxed perhaps the panel doesn't like Valdivia Flores or Mr. Amaya. Regardless, the door panel clearly didn't like Valdivia Flores, and door is just as binding as Valdivia Flores. I don't know. Read it yourself and explain it to me. But, having dispensed with the accomplice liability stuff, the Ninth Circuit also rejected the argument that the Washington statute doesn't require sufficient intentional physical force to qualify as a crime of violence because it, quote, punishes someone who administers poison, or exposes another person to HIV, end quote. Not gonna lie, sounds pretty bad, but the argument is that such acts don't include violent intentional force, as the statute and Supreme Court precedent require. The Ninth Circuit rejected that argument because regardless of how the harm is achieved, the Washington statute requires that the actor have the, quote, intent to inflict great bodily harm, end quote. That satisfies the mens rea required under Supreme Court precedent to be a crime of violence. And as to poison specifically, the Ninth Circuit has previously and, quote, repeatedly recognized that indirect force, like exposure to poison or other harmful substances, satisfies Section 16A's force requirement, end quote. So poison and anthrax will cut it for crimes of violence. Now, for what it's worth, the Ninth Circuit seems to acknowledge that if, as Mr. Amaya argued, an individual could be convicted in Washington by simply knowing that they had HIV and engaging in sexual conduct without more, the statute might not require the use of physical force as the crime of violence case law requires. But after reviewing Washington's state law, the Ninth Circuit found that there was no realistic possibility that Washington would convict for such an offense. So, Mr. Amaya's conviction is an aggravated felony, and it's a pretty bad one, so it leaves only cat deferral. Then I took a firm denial of cat deferral without much analysis, pretty much saying that the IJ properly considered and balanced everything relevant to Mr. Amaya's fears of MS-13 and the Salvadoran government. So that's a monster, but it does have me thinking. not to play DHS, but cases like this do bring up an interesting question. If, as so many immigration attorneys desire and advocate on a daily basis, MS-13 in El Salvador is a persecutor, does that make individuals such as Mr. Amaya who assist MS-13, even as minors, and even in only small ways, potentially barred from asylum and other immigration benefits under the persecutor bar? Should MS-13 one day be recognized as the persecutor that it is, there may be some unintended consequences. After all, as the recently percolating material support of terrorism case law indicates, the BIA and the circuits are not really inclined to read in a duress or de minimis exception to these harsh immigration bars. And that is Amaya v. Garland. How'd you like that? Back to the short asylum cases with Murray v. Garland, published by the 7th Circuit on October 7th, 2021. Mr. Murray is from Jamaica and entered the U.S. 16 years ago as a fiancé of a U.S. citizen, whom he married a month after entering. But when Mr. Murray applied for adjustment of status six years later, USCIS denied the application and initiated removal proceedings. The decision doesn't say why USCIS denied the adjustment of status application, but in removal proceedings, Mr. Murray testified that he was gay and previously attacked in Jamaica for this reason in 2004. He didn't tell police of the attack. He applied for asylum and related relief for this reason. The IJ found Mr. Murray credible, but denied relief and protection. Although the IJ recognized the history of homophobia in Jamaica, evidence indicates that things are getting better. And although there exist laws targeting gay individuals on the books, they are rarely enforced. In fact, apparently, police and prominent politicians in recent years have publicly and emphatically supported gay rights. So the evidence seemed to show. The BIA affirmed, and so did the Seventh Circuit. It appears that Mr. Murray may have actually waived his asylum claim. It was, after all, many years over the one-year filing deadline. And so the Seventh Circuit only addressed withholding of removal, which in many circuits has the same elements as asylum, but just a higher standard of proof. Withholding, of course, also doesn't provide for derivative benefits, doesn't lead to a green card, and can technically be taken away at any time should DHS move for renewed proceedings in immigration court and meet its burden. Anyway, under the difficult-to-meet standard of review, the Seventh Circuit affirmed the IJ finding that the 2004 incident didn't rise to the level of past persecution, which would have then shifted the burden to DHS to rebut the presumption that Mr. Murray warranted withholding of removal. Here, the Seventh Circuit held, in essence, that Mr. Murray's bruises following the 2004 attack were insufficient, quote, significant physical force, end quote and that because Mr. Murray didn't report the incident, he couldn't show the necessary quote, government complicity, end quote, to warrant relief. Without the past persecution presumption, Mr. Murray couldn't establish that he will more likely than not be persecuted in Jamaica today. Even though Jamaica indeed does have anti-sodomy laws on the books, the record shows that Jamaica rarely enforces them, And quote, recent reports show growing public support for gay rights, end quote. To the extent that reports show attacks against gay men, they are by private individuals, and don't show that the Jamaican government is unable or unwilling to protect individuals. Nor do they show that the Jamaican government acquiesces or condones such attacks, as is required for cat protection. Another short decision without many nuggets for me to work with. So let's move on to the final case. And that is Murray v. Garland. Finally, we have Neandwe v. Garland, published by the 7th Circuit on October 8th, 2021. This case is about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Neandwe is a citizen of Burundi but a native of Tanzania, and became a lawful permanent resident in 2006. But he was later convicted of some bad crimes, which he conceded were pretty bad aggravated felonies, and so, in removal proceedings, he applied only for deferral of removal under the CAT. Turns out Mr. Nianwe is an ethnic Twa who fled Burundi with his parents in 1996 due to a civil war and persecution of Twa's. He asserted that as a returning Twa refugee, he'd be persecuted and tortured. But the IJ believed his fears of torture too hypothetical, as did the BIA. The 7th Circuit affirmed, but not before doing something pretty great for non-citizens. See, Most circuits and the BIA require IJs to consider all potential sources of torture in the aggregate cumulatively, when deciding whether a non-citizen has met their burden to establish that they warrant cat protection. Apparently, the 7th Circuit has never expressly held this, but now joins the BIA, 3rd, 4th, 6th, 8th, and 9th Circuits in so holding. Right on. Anti-Gong. The Seventh Circuit gave the analysis a bit of a twist. Apparently, some Third and Fourth Circuit decisions conduct the cumulative analysis by requiring IJs to add up all the percentages individually. That is, if, say, there are three reasons for a fear, and each feared torture has a 20% chance of occurring, that's a 60% risk overall, and so would satisfy the CAT in the Third and Fourth Circuits. To the extent that's the law in the 3rd and the 4th, the 7th Circuit did not adopt that analysis. The 7th Circuit instead requires a more holistic combining of risks that together must convince the IJ that the risk of torture is over 50%. Put another way, quote, the agency need not assign percentage values to risk and engage in the adding of probabilities, but is instead required to show that, in the end, it looked at all the factors together, Here, while the IJ could have been a bit clearer, the 7th Circuit held that the IJ and the BIA properly considered the cumulative effect of all assorted tortures. The IJ also properly held that Mr. Nianwi's fears of harm were too attenuated and too hypothetical. He didn't provide sufficient evidence that he'd be, for example, forced to make bribe payments disguised as electoral contributions, as apparently happens in Burundi, and that he'd then be tortured if he refused. The Seventh Circuit held that Mr. Nyanwe had waived other arguments by not bringing them sufficiently before the BIA, and so dismissed the petition. And that is Nyanwe v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, And this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.